My main statement of belief is that it is incredibly important to get the right counsel involved in your transaction at the right time so that you don't end up in a dispute later on, because I can guarantee you that a transactional attorney is far less expensive than a litigation suit later on. Better sooner than later. Sooner than later, yes. A little prevention, right? Right. Preventative medicine, just in, in terms of a transaction. Well, this is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have Jess and Gregory. She's an attorney with Ruddy Gregory. And Jessen, you and I met at a large conference, and so that which prompted this meeting. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, ma'am. Appreciate your time. If you would, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Yeah, absolutely. I've been practicing for 13 years, and I am licensed in California, Colorado, and Texas. And I'm part of a boutique firm. We have two offices, one here in Cherry Creek, Colorado, and one in Washington, D.C., And there are six lawyers total, and we provide high-quality services at an affordable rate. We have the same experience that large firms do, and we are a smaller-scale version of the same thing. You know, and for the folks go, okay, we have a collection of attorneys. What's the specialty that you guys focus on? So in the Denver office, we have a general business practice. So the majority of our transactions are mergers and acquisition transactions where someone is trying to sell or purchase a business or an asset within that business or get financing, some nature avenue thereof. And in a transaction like that, you always see a piece of commercial real estate. So whether it's the sale of commercial real estate or a lease transaction or transferring that lease. So our business is heavily involved in commercial real estate as well. And then the group in D.C. represents alternative investment communities. So hedge funds, registered investment advisors, private equity funds, and the like. We're also a part of the Alliance of International Business Attorneys. So that means that we have a group that we can reach out to if you have a transaction going on in any other country across the world, basically. So for the business owner that's going like, that's not ringing a bell for me. So let's say that I'm a, if there's such thing as a typical business owner, all right? And you go, you know what? I've got a warehouse that's no longer key to my operation. I want to liquidate it or I've got a warehouse and I want to move and I want to sell one and move to another. What are the typical things that a business owner misses that they should be thinking about if they're going to go down that road? Well, if you don't mind, I like to separate the two into the asset itself versus the real estate, because those are two separate questions and a whole perfect (laughs) of uh, concerns related to both of those. And before we go any further, so everybody knows, this is an interview with Justin and I. This is not to be construed as legal advice. And if you have questions, you know what all the disclaimer stuff you're supposed to say. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I can't provide the world with legal advice, you have to be under engagement of my services. So, so so in a typical transaction where you're selling something of value or purchasing something of value, you have to understand whether or not it's heavily encumbered, whether or not there are alternative issues related to that asset, how the business itself is being run and how that might impact the asset itself. If you're talking about a warehouse I assume that there are contracts with respect to goods coming in and out. So you have to understand what happens to those contracts if you're going to sell. Is the buyer going to be liable to take those over? And basically, if you're the seller, you want to make sure that you are limiting your liabilities 
and maximizing the price that you're getting for the asset itself. So that's that pothole right. to dodge. So we'll talk, I think, you know, for the business owner, we're looking at pothole avoidance for lack of a better term. And so we were talking before the episode and, you know, the thing is, what do you typically get asked? And I said, well, maybe a better way of doing that is talking about some of the common pitfalls that business owners run across. And let's say that I'm a baby boomer and I have a business and I thought I would live forever and have decided all of a sudden based on the doctor's advice that maybe I'm not going to live forever and I need to sell my business. So when you guys get engaged to help a business owner, what are some of the things that you try to encourage them to consider to avoid the pothole down the road? Sure. Well, if I can you know, insert myself anywhere in this transaction, Absolutely. I would try to be involved before the thought of, I want to sell my business even comes about. So if you have partners, we would suggest something called a buy-sell agreement, which really helps a business prepare sufficiently for a transaction either a death, a disability, a divorce, or someone just, you know, voluntarily wanting to leave. And I have a multitude of examples of situations where someone would really need a buy-sell situation. I can give you one. There was a franchise company based in Colorado here that had a business and the majority owner was the younger of the two partners. And the minority older was obviously in his late 60s. Business was going great. They had over a hundred operating franchise stores nationwide and tragically and untimely, the younger of the two partners passed away and there was no buy sell in place. So now the company itself is faced with trying to purchase the estate interest for the younger partner. And that still leaves the minority partner in the minority. Mm -hmm. So it's not a great scenario for him to have had to go into this arena and essentially you think a buy-sell that had been funded by insurance would have been perfectly appropriate in this situation. So that would be if I could insert myself before the question comes up. If we're already talking about someone's approached me with this price and these terms, what am I looking at? Well, that's, I think, the most important time to contact an attorney. So you have a term sheet in front of you. And a term sheet is obviously non-binding or most instances non-binding except for confidentiality and some other of the provisions usually there. But you have to think about the issues that you're going to face in the documents in the term sheet. And if you already signed that without having counsel give their input, then it's very difficult to peel back some of those layers when you're trying to negotiate the document. I like to tell my clients and my colleagues that if you can get me involved, if you can get me in front of the other party at the term sheet stage, I can save you headaches and issues that come on down the road. I think about, you know, the old adage, you know, if you think quality advice is expensive, try either no advice or poor advice. Right. And I think, you know, just kind of as a general statement, if there's some of the listeners out there that are in the boat of either contemplating ownership issues, buy-sell issues, or what happens if somebody shows up at my doorstep, the biggest mistake they can make is not calling you. Right. You know, so before I forget, Social media, how do people find you? Sure. Professionally, social media, our website is www.ruddylaw.com, R-U-D-D-Y law.com. And we have a presence on LinkedIn and also on Twitter. And it's J-E? J-E-S-S, S is in Sam, S is in Sam, E-N, Gregory, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y. 
And my name is Jessen Gregory. And my father is my business partner here in Denver. And he is James Gregory. And people confuse our email addresses. <laughs> so sometimes we'll get each other's email, but I'm one with the long brown hair. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. And he doesn't have long brown no, hair. Yeah. No, not anymore. Not anymore. No, no. Not anymore. It's the hair rinse. <laughs> yeah, I've got the same right. problem. Right. Yeah. You know, I think about maybe a typical business owner commentary. My advisor and either his tax guy or somebody else says, has told me what my business is worth and we can do this ourselves. What would your response be to that? My response is if you go in against a potential buyer or seller on the other side, they're going to have a litany of advisors on their side. They're going to have a CPA. They're going to have an attorney. They're going to have several attorneys. They're going to have a tax attorney. They're going to have people who are advising them along the way. And if you come to bat without the proper equipment, you're behind the ball. And the more you restrict yourself in having the proper advisors on your team, the further your pit becomes the further you dig yourself into that hole. And then once you realize there is a problem, it's very difficult to come out. So one of the things you'd asked me before this discussion was, what are some of the questions that don't get asked? And for me, it's a situation where I think you have to look into the future and think about what issues you're going to face. For instance, we were involved in a transaction where a company was purchasing a service company. And we, as counsel, said over and over again, where's the pipeline? Where are the contracts in the future? Where's the future work coming from? You know, how are you developing your pipeline? How are you getting your customers? I see work for you for eight months, but if we're going to purchase your company and give you a salary, we need to see more than eight months worth of services that you're going to mm -hmm. be providing. And that despite our best efforts, that has become a problem post-transaction. So that's one example. There was an, another example. As I said earlier, we do a lot of commercial real estate, not getting an attorney involved when you're purchasing and a commercial real estate asset. If there's an issue, it becomes your issue to solve when you go to sell it. So if you're the buyer and you see an easement that's running through the center of this commercial property, you say, well, I'm not going to purchase that property until you have that easement removed. That's the obvious mm -hmm. solution. But if you buy it without contacting an attorney and understanding what, what an easement is, then that becomes your responsibility to fix in the next iteration of the transaction. And it's much cheaper to be the buyer and say, you fix that problem, seller. I'll buy your property when that's cleaned up than to be the seller trying to get your contract finalized and get to the closing table with a clean piece of property when you're the one who has to fix the problem, particularly if you're talking about an easement running through the center of your property. It's interesting. I was thinking back to your comment on the contract length on the service company. You've been involved with the service company pre-sale. One of the comments that can typically be made is, can you extend the length of your contracts with your customers? Right. So you have visibility of cash flow for some period of time since it will change the value of your company or can. And you can think about, well, why didn't they know that? And so, you know, from the seller side, if you don't know that, and from the buyer side, you know, you don't have visibility of cash flow. Not only extension rights, but also assignability. So that becomes a total transaction killer. If you're looking through your contract and your assignment clause, again, this is not legal advice. Yeah, but if, you're, but if your contract it's a clause, problem some might have. <laughs> if your contract says something like this contract is not assignable by other parties without the prior written consent of the other party. 
Well, why don't you just add some additional language that says something like, except for upon the sale of all of the assets of the company. And then you avoid that problem because that contract is basically assignable by its terms. You don't even have to you know, invite the comments of the third parties and you can just transfer that contract smoothly to the purchaser. You know, and we were talking beforehand, you know, over your career, and you've got, what, 13 years in your career? Right. You've done over 100 transactions, and I'm sure none are the same. No, not and, one. <laughs> like if you've seen one transaction, you've seen one, you know, and, and you think about the litany of challenges and problems mm-hmm. and, you know, for the pushback that I hear from many business owners is, you know, I know what my business is worth, and I think they discount the value brought to the table by perspective and assembling the proper team. Right. You know, and I agree. there's going to be an enormous transfer of businesses as the baby boomer generation ages. They're either going to transfer because they want to or because they die off. And it's going to, you know, it's going to occur. In thinking about if you're working with a company pre-sale, so you're brought in, they said, we're getting ready. Optimally, how early do you want to be brought into the transaction or pre-transaction? It depends, I think, whether a broker is involved. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a challenge between brokers and attorneys because of just the general nature of tension between those two parties. But I would say, again, before a term sheet is signed, let a lawyer take a look at it. If you're talking about a company that's service-driven, enters into a lot of contracts for its services, have a lawyer take a look at your service contract, see where it can be buttoned up, and think about the transition. So who is my target? Who is a excellent candidate to purchase my company? Do you have a relationship with that group? Is it synergistic? Is it your, you know, family member? Are they ready? Do they have the skill set? Do they have the emotional intelligence to run a business? Do they have the desire? And if they don't, you need to think about the next steps because there are so many, as you were saying, baby boomers that are going to come across the time to sell their businesses in the upcoming years. And it's a much better solution to find somebody who wants to purchase your business than to be in a position of a fire sale where someone has passed away, unfortunately, or someone is sick and is getting ready to transition their business and they're worth much more before those events occur. I think about the broad category of a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, and it sounds like de-risking a business. Right. And you go through and you know, first order business, what's your biggest risk to your business? And you know, your previous example of the majority owner is a younger person and the minority older is older. And you go, demographics would tell you the older guy is going to pass first or gal. Right. Didn't happen in this case. And you go, wasn't in my thought process. Right. You know, and you think about how simple that would have been or if there'd just been instructions in the de-risking phase. When you talk to a business owner, they're typically pretty busy. Running their business. When you talk to them about that and how do you get them to step out of the running of the business to step into thinking about on the business instead of in it. I mean, I hate to be the doom and gloom party, but I always say, you know, think about what would you do tomorrow if this happened? What would you do tomorrow if this happened? And wouldn't it be so great to have fail safes in place so that you could go forward and transact your business as you know it is maintaining the value to the best of your ability because obviously the market can change on you, but the things you can control are protections. And the more protection that you have, going into a situation like that, the better. And also knowledge. I mean, an attorney is a wealth of knowledge of different transactions. 
and thinking outside the box and finding tools that maybe worked for one thing, but don't work for the other. And let's find a different avenue and not affording yourself with that ability to have somebody who thinks outside of the box. I think it's a real detriment to your business and to a future transition. You know, I think about the emotional investment of the business owner when thinking about transitioning the business. You know, it's already bad enough that you think about you're mortal, right? which is a tough topic. And then you think about, well, I spent my life building this business, which is who I am. And then you think about, you know, what do you mean it's risky? I've run it for 30 years. How do you think it's anyways, you know, going down that particular road. When you go through looking at folks and assisting them, you know, what are the top one or two reasons in your history that transactions fail to transact? I think it's a couple of things. The one I'm thinking about the most is a failure of a business owner to understand the liabilities that are going to transfer to the transitioned company, to the buyer or your partner if you're transitioning out, what liabilities are going to transfer and what you're going to be left with and facing, you know, did I properly negotiate the purchase price to understand the liabilities that I still have once the documents are signed? Yeah. Are you really walking away or do you still have some, right. some stuff in the closet? And many times it's not a great scenario for a business owner to just walk away. So we definitely recommend that that owner stays on as an employee or a transition and services consultant and be part of the company going forward. Obviously that person has to be compensated for their time, et cetera, but it's an important transition point because you have employees, you have customers, you have vendors that are all used to, you know, dealing with the same person and to just walk away creates a lot of commotion. And I'm sure that, you know, another one is blending of the cultures. Very often you see two like serviced companies merge because they have synergies, but their cultures are totally different. And I think particularly looking at the younger generation coming into the workforce, you have to understand the culture of one group may not mesh with the other culture of the other. And you have to set forth the parameters from the beginning. So everybody understands What's going to happen as of the transaction? I don't know if you can make this kind of broad statement, but when you look at businesses on balance, those that sell without advisors or a team and those that sell with a team assembled, can you characterize whether one sells at a higher price than the other? I think it may not necessarily reflect it in the actual purchase price, but in the value of what you have either bought or sold, I think it certainly does because the purchase price for just the assets could be X, but the transition services agreement or employment agreement that you go forward with could have the real value. You know, the usual term is called an earnout. That just means that if you continue on with the company and it continues performing as it has, then that's where you're really going to get the meat, the value of your purchase. So without that, if your number is X, but then you're an employee for the next year, but you don't get any benefit for just being an employee other than a salary, what's going to encourage you to really grow the business from the time in which you sell it? What's going to encourage you to really do your best to transition everything that needs to be transitioned over to the buyer? And without being fairly compensated for that, it doesn't work that well. You know, I think about the businesses that their intellectual property or their intangible value is a great deal of what the potential buyer is you know, considering whether it's, you know, local buyer or strategic buyer. When you look at that and you talk to a business owner, 
Do you talk much about the intangible value and how to preserve or protect the intangible values in a company? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things that is a fail safe in a transaction is withholding your client list until the very end. If the potential buyer knows who you're targeting and who you know you sell your services to and your services are not all that unique, you just sort of lost the value of your transaction. And yes, there are confidentiality provisions that usually cover off on some of that, but not always. And it's sort of my job to be inherently distrustful of the other side. And it's not that I work to be objectionable to the other side or confrontational, but I just want to make sure that the proper protections are in place for my clients, such as not disclosing the real trade secrets and client lists and things that are really important until the last minute, until we get to that point. And, you know, for instance, you can list whatever it is your software is, but that doesn't mean you give them the code until the very end or the access or the passwords or whatever it is to run your software services. I think about all of the stuff that we've talked about in broad brush format. And for the client says, you know what, that's exactly right. I need to reach out. So I'm the client that reached out to you this morning. And in the first call, what should I expect to hear from you when we're in this exploratory phase? I'm trying to figure out where you fit and what I want to do. Sure. Um, The first thing that you're going to hear is me taking a bunch of notes because I want to (laughs) hear what the transaction looks like from your perspective and where you are. And And, and if they don't have a transaction ready to go? Then I just want to hear about what their company is like and where they perceive their value and what their future plans are and and how I can best accommodate. Mm -hmm. And usually after they go through that whole scenario, then I respond with what I've been doing with my career and examples of, you know, things that I have done and that I've been involved with and the services that we provide and how I differentiate my services from that of any other small firm in the city or across the nation. So if your follow-up question is, how do I differentiate myself? We like to say that we provide extensive value at an affordable price because we have lawyers in our firm with 40 plus years of transactional experience in the different alternative investment areas that I was speaking of earlier and a large network of advisors and people in the community here in Denver and also in Washington, D.C., that we can reach out to if we have a question. Frankly, I come across a lot of the same counsel on different deals. Mm -hmm. And we strive to provide our clients with the ability to contact us at any time. You know, I know a lot of people try to shy away from providing their cell phone or, you know, answering emails after hours. I do think it's important to, you know, have a boundary set for your own personal well-being, but my clients know that I only take off one week a year where I am unreachable and we go to my family's ranch in Wyoming. I'm only unreachable because there's no self-service I, I there. I say, that's not because <laughs> you're unreachable. <laughs> because I can't. Yeah. I cannot answer. I can leave a message and I'll get it when I get back into self-service. But that time is really important for me to recharge and let my brain sort of calm down and not be constantly looking at my email and my voicemails and trying to accommodate. But having said that, we usually respond to emails and phone calls within a half day, if not a full day. And when you call our numbers, you actually get us. We don't use paralegals and secretaries and things that are going to slow down the communication process. You dial right into our offices. 
Well, that's a really good start for what we were talking about. I think for the folks that are listening, go, should I do this or not? It's inexpensive to make the call. If you talk about a litany of things that you're concerned about, I think there's a prioritization or de-risking that occurs. Says this is the first thing you should do. This is the second thing you should consider doing. And so, you know, low hanging fruit first. You know, I think for the folks out there, yeah, you'd be making a mistake by trying to do this solo because typically the buyer, this is not their first rodeo. And for the seller, it could very well be your first rodeo. And And only. And if it's your entire life's work, you definitely want to be in a position where you can be best protected in a transaction. And my advice to the owners out there, don't wait till you have a term sheet on your desk. If you think you're going to transact, start two or three years before you get ready. Engage quality advisors and get busy doing that. Absolutely. So with that being said, we're going to shift gears. Okay. This is where I get to quiz you today, which is perfect. (laughs) Influential book, one that you like that's uh, altered your perception on how you conduct yourself in business or life. I'm a voracious reader, but I would say that the majority of the things that I read out of the office, because I read legal documents all day, are fictional based. I really love, you know, something that takes me completely outside of my world. But I would say as far as a professional book, I read a book called The Sweet Spot by Wendy Walpole. It's a really great book that talks about different communication styles and how people are who they are. And there's no reason to try to be a different type of communicator. And once you understand how someone else is communicating, it's much easier to understand how to react to them. And I've always found that reacting off the cuff is a dangerous way to conduct your business and that it's much better to sort of digest, understand where they're coming from, attempt to understand where they're coming from, and then ask questions and react accordingly. Perfect. A failure in the past or an apparent failure that's helped you best and set you up for future achievement. So a while back, I was part of a different firm and through many different circumstances, we separated. One of the main reasons was that they weren't comfortable with a transaction that I had brought into the firm. And so I separated from the firm and represented them by myself. And I took a big risk in doing that, both by leaving sort of the job and the payroll that I was used to. And I separated out and did that transaction and It was an incredible success for me because the transaction itself was successful. The clients were extremely happy. They've referred me to other clients. They have kept in touch. They've remained happy with the transaction, which I think is a big gold star. And I also felt a lot of self-worth in doing that because I could understand that I was a competent, intelligent attorney that provided excellent counsel to my clients and that I could count on that to continue to grow my business. A pivot. A pivot. Perfect. If you could put an ad on page one of the local business paper sharing your message, what would it say and why? I think it would say high quality counsel at an affordable price and a positive experience. And I would add to that because you and I talked about this before the episode. You know, so many folks are reluctant. And you typically hear, if I had only known, I wish I had. And I think it's incredibly less expensive to get quality advice to start with instead of waiting until the problems arrived at your doorstep. And so my general banner is reach out, get quality advice because it's less expensive in the long run. Absolutely. All right. 
allocation of time or initiative that's helped you and your company most? I think networking. My networking activities have really increased my clientele. And networking is such a tricky, slippery slope because you're busy doing your work. And if you're not networking, you're not adding to that later on. And the second that you stop networking, you're sort of killing off your pipeline as it goes forward. And maybe there's a certain, you know, balance that occurs naturally where you've networked enough that your clientele continues to grow. But I also think it's important to be a part of your community. And if people see you out networking at events with other colleagues, they understand that you want to have a relationship with them both socially and professionally and that you want to be out in the field instead of behind your desk. I'm also an incredibly social person by nature. I don't freeze at a networking event, but I understand it's not for everybody. And so it's the thing that has grown my business the most. I think that's a separate and distinct skill set is being able to network effectively. Most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you the most. I am a firm believer that self-care is not selfish, <laughs> that making time for your workout, for your other self-care routines, having a monthly massage is not a selfish time during your monthly allocated time. I think it's important to stay healthy and to continue to get self-care because obviously the new slogan is sitting is the new smoking. But if you're not getting up and moving around, I sit on an exercise ball or I have a standing desk that I move up and down throughout the day. And I just don't think that it's selfish to take some time out of your day every day for yourself. You know, I think that, you know, the analogy is we always get a notification on our vehicle when the oil needs to be changed. And we religiously go, well, if I don't change oil in the vehicle, it won't last. And you go, but for me, I'm just going to stay nose to the grindstone. Right. Yeah. We need a warning light, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you established that has most impacted you? I think, you know, aside from providing quality service and making sure to communicate effectively with my clients, in any small business, you face actually collecting on the invoices that you send out. And I think that the whole firm's mentality of making sure that we're checking on that really leads to a better result in the end because it takes, you know, obviously you have to send out the invoices to make the money, but it's also important to follow up on those. And I think that that's an issue of every small firm and every small business. Receivables. Yeah. What advice would you offer to a business owner that's getting ready to sell a business or a portion of his business or her business for the first time? I think to surround yourself with a quality team, not just an attorney, but also a really outstanding CPA, a business manager, and the right insurance folks. Interesting, but neglected crowd of folks by and large. Absolutely. Really. Most common misconceptions about you and your role in the legal profession and how you help businesses? I think there are so many. <laughs> I'd like to say first, I think the most common misconception is that one lawyer is capable of doing anything. I had a very lovely client who asked me to handle her quickie divorce. And I said, that's like asking, you know, your brain surgeon to fix your broken foot. It's just not the same thing, even though you're the same type of profession. We're not qualified to do every single thing within the law. And I think that the more people stay within their own lanes, the better it is for everyone's business. And the more I can refer things like divorce, like estate planning, like litigation to my colleagues, hopefully the more that they in turn refer the business work to me. It's like I don't do brain surgery on the weekends. Right. <laughs> then there's a great reason why not, right. you know. 
looking over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to and why? I think probably being involved when parties are already in dispute. I really try to strive for parties to settle. Litigation is expensive, timely, messy. It's disheartening, but sometimes it's necessary. And so I think the more I can refer those people out and get out of the way, the better if they're not willing to settle. If there's a possibility of settlement, I'm all for preparing and proposing a settlement and a course of action because Again, I just think litigation is extremely expensive and you have to have the heart and money for it. (laughs) One thing I have said to my clients before is, would you rather be right or do you want to go buy a new house? Yes. In the day-to-day operation, what's your personal self-habit or talk that keeps you focused? I try to have a really positive attitude. I think that, you know, this life's work is difficult It's not for the faint of heart. And at any instance, I can get an email that would throw me off for the rest of the day and to try to just maintain a positive attitude so that that doesn't get reflected in anything else that I'm doing, both with my other clients and also with my family at home. Yeah, that's a learned skill. Right. (laughs) It's a daily practice. (laughs) Some days are better than others. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, to wrap it up, perhaps a quote that you find meaningful or use frequently. Well, so this is one that we, again, usually tell our clients that there's not a problem that exists that enough time and money can't solve. And essentially, everything will get resolved. And so to try to have that in the back of your head when you're facing a problem versus feeling very out of control. And that's why you hire counsel. That's why you hire lawyers, because we're skilled in trying to solve your problem in the most effective way possible. And if you don't have the right counsel to solve your problem, then you have to be forthcoming and go out and find somebody who will represent your business interests to the best of their ability. Well, Justin, I really appreciate you taking time out of your afternoon and sharing your wisdom. Thank you for coming here, Bob. I appreciate being on your show. Absolutely.